0: Well hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Uh, Today I am thrilled to be joined by Pastor Ellis Potter. Uh, Ellis was a a Zen Buddhist monk and became a Christian under the ministry of Francis Schaeffer I believe and since then has been a pastor and still travels extensively helping people in different countries uh, understand the Bible and get to know God better. Uh, He's someone who's known for his um, wisdom and questioning persona able to answer questions. honest questions in quite a concise manner. And so, Ellis, I'm really excited to have you with you, with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, now, Ellis, I mentioned before that you have uh, helped me hugely from afar, having never met you, but read several of your books um, that have answered some of those deeper questions to life um, that perhaps I haven't been able to articulate myself. And you seem to have an ability to be able to put the world into words uh, and make sense of people's deep questions. Um, so firstly, I want to thank you for your books, particularly the Three Theories of Everything, which is going to form the, the, the bulk of our conversational topic today. But also you've got another book, How Do You Know That?, which is essentially on epistemology, which I like that you, you start by saying epistemology is not a disease, um, which in a day of ep- um, epidemiology is probably quite important to clarify. <laughs> Um, so Ellis, thank you for your books, thank you for your work, thank you for being on our podcast and for all that we're going to talk about today. Um, why don't you start by helping our, our listeners get to know you a little bit, tell us a, about yourself and maybe a, a potted history of some of your, your journey to where you're at right now if that's
1: possible. Okay, I grew up in California and became a Zen Buddhist monk. And then as a monk, I traveled looking for community. And in Switzerland, I became a Christian, much to my surprise, in the work of Labrie Fellowship. And then I stayed there for 16 years and worked with Francis Schaefer and in the work after he died. And then uh, that was in the French speaking part of Switzerland. And then I came north to Basel to pastor a church which I did for 10 years. And then I traveled mostly for my work for a few years and then began a part-time pastorate in Lausanne and continued to travel. And now I preach uh, twice a a month in Lausanne and once a month uh, for a church in Basel and um, write books and uh do podcasts and things like that and i hadn't traveled for a couple of years but last week i went to latvia for a week and it was a little bit of a test because i'm 73 and my question was can i still do this because there are various stresses involved and it went okay i was very pleased so I'm, I'm thankful and maybe there will be a bit more travel in the future.
0: Yeah, well, fantastic. And I enjoyed hearing earlier about your FBI, your Friday Bible investigations, um, yes. Bible study class. You seem to be joined by people from all around the world connecting in with yes, you. Yes, I'm very
1: pleased with that. It's an international group, uh, some in the room and some on Zoom online and um, a very diverse group. But the, they love each other and pray for each other and form something of a community of bible study and fellowship Mm. i'm very very thankful for them wonderful well
0: ellis i'm really hoping that today you can help answer some of my questions about uh, buddhism and particularly i think since we have experienced and seen what i would observe anecdotally uh, quite a a rise in popular buddhism and certainly um, buddhist practices in the west Things like mindfulness, which seems to have come from Buddhism, or maybe not. Perhaps so I'm looking forward to you sharing some sharing some light on that. Um, why did you become a Buddhist monk? Let's start with that and tell us a bit about Zen Buddhism, if you can.
1: Okay, I became a Zen Buddhist monk. I didn't become any kind of a Buddhist. Okay. There are there are a huge variety of Buddhists, and uh, I became a Zen Buddhist because I had a lot of questions. And the Christians I I knew in the church where I grew up and others were not interested in my questions. And I concluded that Christianity was not true. Although I had had uh, experiences and fellowship and uh, friendships and my family were basically Christian, I, I tried to be honest and I didn't get answers. And the Zen Buddhists were always interested in absolutes and always interested in having an absolute context for everything in life and always thinking in terms of absolutes concerning all all the questions that come to life. And that was very attractive to me. And they were disciplined and ecologically sound. And and so I, I became a Zen Buddhist because that seemed like the best way to pursue truth and to be real. And what exactly
0: does being a Zen Buddhist involve?
1: It depends. You can be a household Zen Buddhist and uh, meditate uh, twice a day and read Zen Buddhist books and go to retreats sometimes. Or if you live in a big city, you can go to a Zen center Uh, once a week or or something like that. Or you can become a monk and go and live in a monastery, in a community. And, And then that's a rather intense, concentrated life.
0: And that's what you did, is that right? Yeah. And so what did the life look like in the monastery?
1: Oh, it was a Rinzai Zen. There are three denominations of Zen, and this was Rinzai. And we got up at three in the morning and we went into the meditation hall and meditated. Um, And then we saw the teacher, each of us, and then we uh, had breakfast. And then um, in intensive training periods, we meditated again and saw the teacher four times a day. And uh, in the more relaxed times, we worked um, for half of the day in normal things, cooking and cleaning and painting and repairing and community life maintenance and going shopping and uh, the normal things of life. And uh, then we, we went to bed about nine And, and then got up and started over, started
0: over again. Wow. So what does uh, what does meditation mean and look like for a Zen Buddhist monk? It depends on your denomination.
1: In Rinzai um, which is called the sudden school, koans are used and you sit in the lotus position on a cushion, alone or in a room with other people. And you either do Shikantaza, which is just sitting, or you count your breath, um, concentrating on each breath, which is very, very difficult to, to only concentrate on your breath and not to think about anything else. And during my years of practice, once I got to four, but it's very, very difficult. It's, you're supposed to start go to 10, and then for super achievers, you could go more. but. It's, it's really very difficult. And the, the koan is a question that is designed to frustrate the intellect so that your uh, cerebral processes are not linear, but uh, more atmospheric and deeper and um, not narrative, but uh, immediate experience of physical and uh, cerebral experience of reality and there is a certain element of sensory deprivation that life is reduced to breathing. You breathe in, you breathe out, and you don't move. You you only concentrate on on what you're doing, and um, it it brings a person into a, a center of consciousness where one is free from the great variety of details and activities that that go on in life and and the goal is to um to be enlightened to enter into buddha consciousness
0: and so i suppose in in aiming for that goal um we kind of leads us onto to the question of The worldview but beneath that and why that why those practices would be preferred above others and what some of the thinking is behind buddhism um which perhaps leads us into conversations about your theories of everything um into which buddhism falls i suppose could you is that is that a helpful segue to for, for you to start talking to us a bit about your theories of everything work
1: Uh, It depends on what you want to ask.
0: I leave it to you. (laughs) Okay, let's go there then. (laughs) Tell us about the theories of everything. Um, And then within that, we'll learn more about Buddhism.
1: Well, a theory of everything is uh, an understanding of absolute reality, not relative reality. It's a, a circle of awareness that is so big that it contains all the particulars. So it's a theory of everything. And uh, as I thought about it, it came down to basically three or two and a half. And one is monism, everything is one, which is extremely popular and ancient all over the world, and has come in the last several decades into the Western world, where where it really did not play much of a role uh, for most of history, but now it's very active in the Western world. And the the second theory is dualism, in which the absolute is two in a perfect balance. And uh, the question of life is, why do we suffer? And can anything be done about it? And so uh, the three theories of everything have in common an understanding that reality had a perfect beginning. There aren't a lot of people who think that reality began as a chaos and continues to be chaotic and there is no sense or understanding or direction to reality at all. There's no order. Not a lot of people think that, some do, um, but most people think that, that something is wrong. And you see something can only be wrong if we know what right is. So if reality had a perfect beginning anything that is different from that perfection is wrong. If reality had a chaotic beginning, then nothing can be wrong because nothing is different from chaos. So each each theory, one, two, three, have an understanding of uh, a perfect beginning to reality, and they're quite different from each other. So the, the first theory understands that the perfect beginning of reality was a perfect unity with no diversity. And then we suffer because an illusion or nightmare of diversity has come into human consciousness. And we can stop suffering by waking up out of the nightmare, awakening or enlightenment into a realization of perfect unity. In in the second theory of everything, the original perfection is a perfect balance of equal opposites and we suffer because imbalance or disharmony has come into reality we don't know exactly how but it clearly did because things are not right and we do suffer and salvation or the the solution to the problem of suffering is to restore the balance and the harmony of reality and in the third circle the reality the the uh, original perfection is three persons which is quite more complex and it is as in the first theory of everything perfectly unified but also perfectly diversified so in the third circle neither unity nor diversity are the cause of suffering it's something else Uh, in the third circle you have objectivity the three persons are objectively there and subjectivity they view each other from different points of view and so objectivity and subjectivity belong to reality from the beginning and are not the cause of suffering we also find form and freedom each person is unique and has a specific form for instance the form of god the father is to command and to send and the form of god the son is to obey and to go So their forms are actually opposite of each other. They're they're not um, clones of each other. They're not interchangeable. They don't replace each other. They're they're unique. And so we find that form and freedom in reality belong in reality because they're an extension of the perfect beginning and not in themselves the cause of, of suffering. We find hierarchy. The father commands, the son obeys, uh, although they are both equally God, um, we find um, sequence, the son is chosen, there's a before the choosing, the choosing and then after the choosing. And so we find that there are two matrices of sequence in reality, the matrix of sequence in space. Uh, A matrix is an atmosphere in which things happen, like water is the matrix of tea, and cyberspace is the matrix of email and Zoom. And uh, the matrix of sequence of before and after in space is time. Things happen in time. The matrix of sequence outside of time is eternity. So reality began with eternity and then time was created and time is very similar to eternity. It is a matrix of sequence and we live basically in time, but there's an interface between time and eternity. The problem, the cause of suffering in the third circle is that originally in the original perfection, the three persons of God are other centered The center of the Son is not the Son, it is the Father and the Holy Spirit. The center of the Father is the Son and the Holy Spirit. The, The center of the Spirit is the Father and the Son. And they have needs like we have. They need to be seen, they need to be heard, they need to make a difference, and they need to be wanted. But in the original perfection, those needs are a cause of perfect joy because they are perfectly met by the other two persons. So each person empties himself to meet the needs of the other two, which means each person is emptied once and filled twice. And so the energy of the filling increases exponentially until God says, let there be light, and there's a universe. We call that energy, that emptying and filling, love god is love and we suffer because we have become self-centered and we implode on ourselves so we become radically different from god we reject his perfection and his um, identity and way of being and we invent our own through our own imagination and will And this is called sin. And then we die. We suffer and we die. We implode. The self-centeredness crushes us. And the solution in the third circle is that the creator himself enters into the creation and becomes part of it. Merry Christmas. And then being in time and in eternity, being human and God, being imminent and transcendent, a unique situation for a person, he did one thing, typical God behavior. He emptied himself on the cross, literally drained of blood, but cosmically emptied so that because of his emptying, not for himself, but for the needs of the others, the the emptying the blood of Jesus makes it possible for the whole creation to be remade and restored and for human beings to choose to accept and receive the power of the blood, the emptying of Jesus, and to become new persons, to be, as the Bible says, born again. So we are dead as self-centered, imploding people. And because of the blood of Jesus, we can be new, living, other-centred people and begin to grow and learn to live in that reality which is called the kingdom of God.
0: Look at that. Wow. Superb. Inspiring and beautiful. And you managed to condense your two-hour lecture into a few minutes there.
1: (laughs) Well done. Yeah, it's an accordion lecture.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Ellis. Um, What I so appreciate about your work and the way you you put things like that is is several things but um you help us to see that christianity is a has a fundamentally different way of explaining reality to a lot of other systems of thought in the world and therefore it needs to be recognized that it will have different answers because it starts from a different premise and has a different explanation of the reason for everything and and the reason for being etc which I find very helpful uh, for helping us work things through. Let's um, let's revisit then some of those circles, and you know. So I think it's a bit like um, we've had the overview synopsis of the series um, of the of the whole thing. Let's condense and revisit some of those circles, if we may, and walk through some questions that might arise um, to give us further understanding and explanation. I think you said that the theories of everything uh, are trying in part to answer the question of suffering uh, our experience of suffering is universal i think in your book you say rene descartes may have said that i think therefore i am but actually it might be more accurate to say i suffer therefore i am since our or, or, or i experience pain therefore i am since that is something that we can all uh, we all recognize is, is not just a, a universal experience but a problem for us something that's uncomfortable and so therefore de- dealing with suffering becomes um the endeavor of every human being in the way that we live um famously, the Buddha is said to have um, ex- or said that life is or Buddhism says that life is suffering. Um, and so let's let's kind of revisit monism and help us to understand. I think the way you talk about it is a, is a bit more of a, like a, a natural theology way of understanding the world, looking at the world around you, concluding and see and helping us to understand why people conclude that the world is, in fact, um, originated from a one state um, and a unified state. And why it is that, how it is that that helps us make sense of our suffering, um is that okay? Is that, does that make sense? We can dive into the monistic worldview and help us understand how that came to be a bit more, and how it is that it's agreed that suffering um, is resolved in that circle.
1: Yes, um the the idea in the in the first circle in monism, in monism is very ancient, and may have begun in India, but I don't know if we're in certain where it began but it is very ancient and very powerful and very compelling and I think it began uh, in a scientific way by people observing and experiencing the reality in which they found themselves as consciousnesses and asking questions about it what can be a, a general understanding of this Um, with a a motivation, a tendency to think and to feel that there must be perfection. There there must be a way that is right Um, and uh, and a thought and a feeling against the idea that uh, suffering and cruelty are normal in the world and that we shouldn't try to change it. But human beings tend to realize deeply that something is wrong and that there is hope that that it can be changed. And so the, the people observed and experienced that there is a very powerful unity. There is one Earth and one sun and one sky and one moon and one cycle of day and night and one cycle of four seasons. And these unities are faithful and stable and dependable. You don't have to stay awake at night wondering if the sun will come up in the east or the west. You trust, you bet your life that it comes up in the east and you're always vindicated because it is always, always, always true. Um, And there there is a goodness to that. Spring follows winter Autumn never follows winter. You can depend on it. You can bet your life. You can bet your agricultural activities that spring will follow winter. Um, And so the, the unities are stable and faithful and we depend upon them. But the diversities are unstable and unfaithful. So there are different kinds of weather and the weather is unstable and unfaithful. And in some kinds of weather, we suffer. It's inappropriate to the season or it's extreme. And there are different kinds of people and many, many diversities in reality. And you cannot trust the diversities. You cannot depend on them, they change all the time. But the unities you can uh, trust and depend on. So it was a logical conclusion and rational uh, thought form that led people to conclude that the original perfection must be a perfect unity. And we suffer because diversity has come into our awareness and experience. And these people didn't make these observations and experiences because they were eating funny mushrooms we have exactly the same experiences and observations. They're universal human experiences and observations of the reality in which we are. In a Cartesian Aristotelian world, as we have in the West with our whole uh, history of philosophy and thought, it can be very paradigm shifting and be very disturbing to realize that a conclusion like monism can be logical, rational, and wrong. Because we are raised to believe that something that is logical and rational is true and correct and right, but this one isn't. So um, that I think expands our mental activities to realize that A does not always equal non-A as we are taught in the West, That something can be logical and rational and wrong. There's nothing wrong with the logic of the first circle. It is a rational conclusion. What is missing is revelation. The the information comes from human experience. And not from the revelation of God. Although the revelation of God is available. Um. People have strong ideas and follow them and get separated from, from the revelation of God, from his truth. And uh, the fact that that their ideas are logical and rational and consistent um, really encourages them in not paying attention to the revelation of God. and I'm very sympathetic because some of these people are wonderful people that you enjoy and they have kind hearts and and everything. But um, as a Christian, I I have to realize that it's wrong. It's logical and rational and some very sweet people believe in it, but it's not true.
0: Within monism, is there a God?
1: Uh, There are many gods famously in Buddhism and in Hinduism, but none of them are absolute.
0: What do you mean by that, sorry?
1: Well, because if there is a God, then there is not God and there's already diversity. And the original perfection is unity. So in unity, you cannot have God and not God. You would have what people call pantheism, but, but that's a silly word. The, the correct word is pan-everythingism because theism is the idea that there is a God or gods, and then there is not God. But that's diverse, that's not unified. Mm. So yes, there there are various ideas of the supernatural and various influences in the supernatural, but none of them are uh, absolute, none of them are enlightenment, none of them are a source of salvation. It is only awakening, enlightening, realizing the, the unity. So Buddha is not a god, Buddha is actually possibility, which possibility is a pregnant nothing, which is a very important concept. Yes, it sounds important, but also very mind-bending. <laughs> Help us with that one. We, for instance, we might say it is possible that it will rain tonight. And that possibility is real and it is nothing. You can't measure it, it's not a probability, there's no mathematical uh, uh, reality connected to it. It's possible. It's nothing but everything that is, everything, every event, every thought, every imagination, every emotion is possible or it doesn't exist. Is God possible? Is the devil possible? Are you possible? Something has to be possible in order to exist. And the possibility is a unified nothing that is pregnant with everything. And so what what we need to do for salvation in monism is to realize possibility. And we become absolutely nothing and we become absolutely everything at the same time, non-time
0: which is when we start to sound like Yoda um, in the way that we try to explain the world.
1: And, um, yes, it can be, but there's yes. always mystery. Christianity has mysteries. Mm. so. When you
0: said Buddha is possibility, help us with that, because I thought Buddha was just, I say just, the founding teacher of Buddhism.
1: Oh, that was an avatar
0: of Buddha, uh,
1: an appearance. Okay. Uh, an angel if
0: like okay, we, we would say an incarnation uh we could say
1: incarnation yes um a, a, a representative and the his name was siddhartha gautama and he uh, became enlightened he realized buddha nature and he, he was very influential, he was wealthy and well-known, and he started a movement in India about 500 years BC. And it was a very radical movement because he denied the reality of the caste system, which was the basic structure of the whole political uh, social structure of the society. And he said, no, the caste system is nothing. And so after he died, the Buddhists were basically driven out of India because it was too disturbing. It was it was like a radical reformation of, of, of Hinduism into Buddhism.
0: Okay. So Hinduism pre-exists, predates Buddhism. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Buddhism is much older than... Uh, Hinduism is much older than Buddhism. And
0: so Hinduism, is that among one of the first organized religious thoughts of monism?
1: Hinduism is very difficult to define. It's, uh, it's a lot of things that come together and it's a little bit amoeboid. It it moves and it's it's very difficult to contain what Hinduism actually is. It's, it can absorb and contain almost anything. But it is basically uh, monistic. But many people who are Hindus culturally and historically are not aware of the basic realities of monism. They're aware of the social, cultural, ritualistic, religious uh, functionings that have developed within Hinduism and are not aware of the general principles behind. But Christians are the same. There are many Christians who are aware of their emotions, their experiences, their fellowship, their community, their healing, their empowering, but they they couldn't tell you anything about Jesus. They can only tell you their experiences of Jesus. So I'm often asking Christians, please tell me who is Jesus Christ before you were born? If you don't exist, who is Jesus? And many Christians are struck dumb but many Buddhists or Hindus would be struck down if you ask them, who is Buddha before you were born? Which is a question that they ask in a Zen monastery. <laughs> who is Buddha before you were born? I think it's a brilliant question. Who, who is Krishna before you were born? Well, to, to come into touch with the absolute and to actually worship, you have to deal with that question. Who is Jesus before I experience him? And many Christians who have a strong humanistic thread in their thought and experience will say, well, before I experienced Jesus, he's nothing because my experience tells me everything I know. So um, Christians are not worse than other people.
0: (laughs) But neither are we better. No, we're not. not. That's very helpful. Thank you. So, um, Buddha as a concept existed and pre existed. um, um, Sorry, I can't remember his name, the founder of Buddhism. um, Siddhartha Gautama. Pre existed him. What does the word Buddha mean then? Um, Exist is not
1: the right word.
0: Okay. What would be the right word?
1: um, There is no right word. The right expression is silence, which was Buddha's last sermon on Vulture Mountain. Many, many people gathered to hear his last sermon and he picked up a flower and looked at it and smiled. And that was it. And and that was profoundly real and consistent with the worldview. If any, any word is wrong, because a word will define and if something is defined then you know what it is and what it isn't but if buddha is possibility then there's nothing that he is and nothing that he isn't we're talking about a completely different level of reality
0: and we can start to see as well how difficult it can be for a a western christian shaped mind to
1: understand a lot of these ideas and and that is why mindlessness which is a concept particularly of zen buddhists has been translated into mindfulness which i consider actually a heresy but in an achiever society no mind or mindlessness doesn't sell you have to have an achievement, you have to have mindfulness, and then people are interested in it. But obviously, the, the the concept is mindlessness. You have no mind. And when you have no mind, then you realize Buddha nature. You realize possibility. But if you have a mind that thinks linearly or in any other way then it's diverse it's isolated from parts of reality and you have not realized in nature i
0: see and of course in our in the way that we teach and practice mindfulness particularly in schools it it is a an emptying of your mind to focus on nothing so that it is, it is really a mind a mind emptying experience rather than a mind filling experience yes i see yes
1: and and that uh belongs to zen buddhism
0: well maybe we can stay with stay with that uh grenade you've just chucked in there as well because i'd love to (laughs) i'd love to get your thoughts on meditation therapeutic practices um whether or not christians christian parents ought to have reservations or concerns about this whether or not the practice of emptying your mind is somehow not just. Less Christian, but whether or not it's going to be harmful for for Christians to practice, what would be some of your
1: reflections on that? Yeah, if we if we empty our mind or stop our mind, we cannot test the spirits, and we cannot have the mind of Christ because the mind of Christ is linear. It it is not. Um, one moment it is not static the mind of christ is active and when we have the mind of christ then our minds are active when we see before and during and after and if you empty your mind you cannot see before and during and after it's a radical sensory deprivation and in many cases uh, it can actually be therapeutic as various kinds of drugs can be therapeutic. But if they are misused or decontextualized or overdosed, they become destructive. And so I would say it's it's similar with the holiday of stopping your mind, which is very difficult to do in the first place, but it is very relaxing and very energizing to stop your mind because the way we usually use our energies is not being used and there's a deep relaxation and energizing that goes on. And I would ask it about various things that Christians do. Do various Christian practices in churches make us more able to love or do they make us more self-centered? And I think we find a bit of both in there, that we should be critically analyzing and and thinking about what we do in our own culture and and religious practices so i would do the same for things that are not associated with christianity like jogging does jogging help or does the joggers high make me more selfish or does it Uh, bring me more into the mind of Christ? Well, I think it depends on an individual person that some things are helpful to some people and unhelpful to other people and, and don't have a general plus or minus, which is what people look for and want because it's very simple. And it means that we can finish thinking and stop thinking and relax that our mind is made up and please do not confuse me with the facts people have a natural tendency to want those kinds of answers but I don't believe it is a spiritual tendency. I think a spiritual tendency is to stay awake and test everything and not to make general uh, conclusions about things that are labeled and categorized uh, so that we don't have to wrestle with it anymore and we don't have to think about the nuances or the possibility that people are different and that it would affect them differently. It's very relaxing to make up a mindset of, this is my stand, that's it. Uh, That's very attractive, but I I actually don't recommend it. I I don't think it's helpful in terms of the Christian life.
0: And so as as opposed to mindfulness or mindlessness, you'd advocate thinking more rather than thinking less.
1: Yes, and if, If someone that I know wants to practice uh, mindfulness or mindlessness, I would ask them a lot of questions about it. In dealing with people, I tend to ask many more questions than making statements because a statement is very easy to reject, but it's harder to reject a question. The question goes under the radar and, and goes in and starts to work and can be a blessing to a person. Whereas a statement can just start an argument.
0: That's interesting.
1: But people like to be able to make statements because it gives them a sensation of power. But I think we should resist that and to say, no, I am not powerful. The Holy Spirit is powerful. I, I should love and I should be creative in my loving. And I should realize that Jesus asked a lot of questions and so mm. should I.
0: Yeah, you think the one, the one human being in history who probably had permission to exercise power and make as many statements as he wanted about the world, um, he did strike a balance, it seems, between asking questions and preaching truth. Um, well, I, since it's kind of, I've asked you that question about mindfulness, it's um, provoked another kind of pop practice related question that some people may be wrestling with not necessarily linked to some of the the absolute questions that we are talking about we'll circle back around there but uh, that's to do with the the practice of yoga and a lot of Christians seem to be quite concerned about the inroads of yoga as being quite acceptable particularly to secular people uh, or or pilates even it, what how, what do we think what are we to make of pilates yoga any practice of the body like that that may have questionable Um, roots what would be some of your advice or reflections or even questions to ask people when considering is yoga acceptable for christians um, and for churches even to host it in their buildings those sorts of questions
1: well i would say generally nothing is safe people want to believe that things are safe because it's very relaxing but i don't think they are i don't think it's safe to go to church because we go to church and we're jealous of that one's shoes and we lust after that one. And there's just all kinds of dangers in going to church. We can be manipulated. We can be caught up in prejudices. We can encourage each other not to think but to chant mantras and to uh, become less human. There are all kinds of dangers in church that we need to be awake to. And so uh, if church and, and reading the Bible is not safe. Nothing is safe. We have to stay awake. We have to test everything. So if we're awake and we test going to church and reading the Bible, then of course we should test yoga. We shouldn't just accept it as something that is safe because nothing is. And different things are safer or less safer for various people. It's, uh, we don't have a one size fits all situation. I think that's, that's pretty easy to demonstrate. But we want a one size fits all situation because it's quite relaxing. And I don't have to think it, about it anymore. I just make up my mind. This is the thing, it fits everyone. And that's my approach and, and my opinion. But I, I don't think that that is the mind of Christ. I think we need to stay awake and realize that people are different and people react and are influenced different, uh, differently by different things. Um, Very few people have much of an understanding about what yoga is. People think it's standing on your head in a pretzel, which is, of course, part of it. But there are basically five yogas. There's hatha yoga, which is the yoga of the physical body and the breathing, the pranayama. And there's janana yoga, which is the yoga of intellect and bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion and religious practices, and karma yoga, which is the yoga of work and responsibility, and raja yoga, which is the yoga of meditation and uh, transcendence. And the yogic system involves all five. It's a comprehensive uh, system of life. But in the West, we pull out the hatha yoga to, to practice it. And The the yoga was developed by the ancient people um, as a way, as, as a therapeutic methodology to help people to be awakened and to realize the perfect unity. And it was developed not because they were masochists and wanted to suffer more, but because they wanted to suffer less. And the yoga is in fact therapeutic, so it can relieve your back pain, it can help you sleep better, it can relieve some stress. There there are various benefits that can be realized from the physical hatha yoga and the pranayama, the the breathing exercises. So if someone is interested in yoga or it's recommended to them, I would go to a yoga teacher and ask some questions, like what is the basic purpose and function of yoga? And if the teacher says, oh, it's basically to help with your back pain and your posture and to oxygenate your blood and to help you sleep better, maybe try it. If the teacher says the purpose of yoga is to help you to transcend your consciousness and become one with the all, run away. Don't decide before you ask any questions. Because people develop ideas around the sound of a word so the sound of the word yoga is magic for a lot of christians it's evil magic it's black magic and they don't think about it at all which i don't think is very helpful
0: and so in those five practices of yoga everything in life that one does in theory could be construed as yoga given it's not only
1: construed it is yoga you can't escape Mm. it so if you think you're doing jnana yoga. If you read a book, you're doing jnana yoga. If you sing a worship song, you're doing bhakti yoga. If you walk or jog, you're doing hatha yoga. If you breathe rhythmically or you do anything that's not spastic, you're practicing hatha yoga. Anything that is rhythmic and and regular. If you sit up straight, it's hatha yoga. Mm.
0: And so some of one of the concerns I've heard people say is that the body movements in yoga is a is a way of worshipping a a god within Hinduism. But actually, it, it sounds like everything we do could be or is a part of that system of thought. And so I, I can see your point that actually it's about being awake and thinking through are we doing. So I guess my question is, can you accidentally worship a god um, in the way that you behave and
1: Uh, No, I don't think you can. As Paul said about eating meat sacrificed to idols, these idols are nothing. And if you feel that you are worshiping an idol when you eat the meat, then it's wrong. But if you don't feel that, you should eat the meat and be thankful to God. We are free. That the Christians should not live basically in fear, but in trust and victory. And we shouldn't be looking under the beds for evil spirits and and being afraid all the time because Jesus protects us. The Holy Spirit is in us and gives us discernment. And if if we do something like go to the cinema and we feel that it is wrong or we drink wine and we feel that it is wrong, then we deliberately do wrong. We don't accidentally do it. And if you do yoga and you think, oh, now I'm worshipping Krishna, stop. <laughs> Don't do it.
0: <laughs> Very helpful comments. Thank yeah. you. Um, well, if we can circle back around to our, our, our kind of conversation then about the, the theories of everything and breaking them down, we we were talking about monism. Um, and I, I, what I'm picking up in the way that you're answering my questions is the the way that we understand um, the solution of Christianity as being love actually should inform the way that we think about everything that we do. Um, so by properly understanding the the absolute reason or absolute way of seeing the world um, in these different systems of thought is a helpful way of trying to critique and understand them better. Um, in Buddhism, I've heard you or you've you've written before that um, since suffering, uh, since life is suffering and the the end result, end goal is to be enlightened, to wake up, to realize your unity. Therefore, love is evil. Can you explain if I got that right? And could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yes. Um, A concept that is somehow related to love in Hinduism or Buddhism is compassion but compassion is not love love is a relationship and and love is a function of diversity and if monism is true then diversity is evil then love because it is a relationship is evil and we need to transcend love into compassion the compassion of the buddha is a desire that all living beings would realize that they are buddha and to move to facilitate that that realization that is compassion Uh, the compassion is not to help a person with a problem or to fix their leg if they break it uh, or to give someone food if they're hungry that is not compassion that is love so you have in hinduism Uh, And in Buddhism, the doctrine of ahimsa, which is non-interference. And of course, people realized early, early on that the average person is not enlightened, does not uh, become one with the all and wake up. And so obviously we need more time. And the doctrine of reincarnation was developed because you just have to have it. And so the the doctrine is we're born into suffering and then we die, and then we're born into suffering, and then we die. And step by step, moving forwards and backwards, we move toward enlightenment, into in, uh, awakening. Well, there is karma so that the things we do in one life affect the life that we live thousands of years later. There's cause and effect, nothing is gained or lost. And these things have to be worked out. So if you have to learn a variety of things, and if you have learned to be poor and sick and hated, then you might need to learn to be wealthy and healthy and popular. And that would be your your work in this present lifetime. Well, if a person is learning from their experiences of pain and suffering and neglect and sickness, and they're lying in the gutter and they're half starved, then that is their karma. That's what they are doing. That's what they are learning. And if you go and interfere with them by taking them to a hospital or giving them a place to sleep or comforting them, they're gonna have to live that life all over again. So it's actually a curse. And compassion is to let them live their life. And so we find that the Hindus never built hospitals. I go sometimes to Bangalore to teach, which is a very large city in Southern India. It's the Silicon Valley of India. And there are many hospitals and clinics throughout the city, big ones and little ones. And each one has a cross on it. And the city is basically Hindu and Muslim, but, th- but there are no Hindu or Muslim symbols or Buddhist symbols on the hospitals because it's not in the worldview. It's in the biblical worldview to practice hospitality and to love and to care and to comfort these things. And compassion, the compassion of the Buddha is not like that. The compassion of the Buddha is to support a person in what they are doing at that moment. And if what they're doing is learning how to suffer, then you mustn't stop their suffering. That's counterproductive.
0: You have a, a helpful, I guess, parable or illustration of this in regards to a toothache. Can you help us? Is that, is that a helpful thing to throw in to help us understand this concept more of suffering and um, well, yes.
1: If I if I have it, it's, it's a question of desire. We suffer because we desire, and we live through suffering in order to learn not to desire, because desiring is a function of diversity. And in the four noble truths of Buddhism, the cause of suffering is desire. We suffer because we desire. And compassion is to help us not desire. If I have a toothache and I desire that the pain will stop, I suffer because my desire is frustrated. But if I have a toothache and I do not desire that the pain will stop, I'm free. You're free, but you're
0: still in pain. So is it just that you've accepted that your reality now is a painful
1: one? Yes, and I accept that pain is, I am, all is one i'm free
0: not comfortable but maybe that's not maybe that's the point is it it,
1: well not comfortable but at peace oh really and you see it's similar to the peace of christianity if we suffer if we're persecuted and we know that god is for us and with us and caring for us we have shalom we have peace and we suffer at the same time, it's it's a similar thing, because the monism is a very intelligent, close counterfeit of Christianity, in various ways. So you find very similar things in in both of them.
0: I, in fact, I, I attended a conference that um, a Christian conference that made the tried to make the case that Christianity is essentially Trinitarian monism. And I, I remember because I'd read your book, I thought, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> um, I think they're very different. And by conflating the two, Trinitarianism, we might say, and Monism, we actually we, we miss and we lose the beauty of, of the truth.
1: Uh, I, I would tend to agree.
0: But of course, when a Christian suffers and we might say learns, learns peace, learns to find the peace of Christ in it, the The underlying reason for that for the Christian is trusting the goodness of our loving Father, rather than um, making peace with the fact that we're at this stage in enlightenment and need to need to just maintain or hold our ground, hold our nerve in this place until we move to the next stage of enlightenment. Well, in
1: in the Christian worldview, the peace is because of a relationship. And in the monistic worldview, the peace is because of a lack of relationship. And it's only by eliminating relationships that I can eliminate desire. So is it hard for Buddhism
0: Buddhists to maintain healthy marriages and love relationships, romantic relationships? Is that something that's strange for us in the West to understand?
1: Well, it's a, it's a little bit different, but it's it's possible because they cheat. What do you mean? <laughs> so
0: Buddhist mothers love their babies. But they, they, do they feel that as a we might they might not use this word, but do they feel it as sinful to love their babies? Well,
1: they know that it's it's not uh, enlightenment. But they're that they're in delusion, illusion. They're they're living in the nightmare of reality. But they should do the best they can in in that circumstance. And so, women loving their baby is not condemned because it's it's a a, a good way to function at a stage of development. But basically, it's it's not right for women to love their babies because it's a
0: relationship
1: Mm. i guess a a christian equivalent is jesus
0: is saying because of your hardness of heart moses gave divorce laws understanding the the brokenness of reality and the difficulty to you know uphold perfect relationships of love the concessions we might say are made is it similar in that sense i don't think so okay sorry
1: I'll cut that bit from the tape. (laughs) It might be the most instructive bit. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, When people in the West picture Buddhism, they see it as being a very peaceful, loving religion. Um, But that seems to be at odds with what you're describing, not the peacefulness, perhaps. There is a a peacefulness in um, withdrawing and retreating from some of the complexities and challenges of love but um maybe that's uncharitable to say you can help me change that phrase but um perhaps with the statement that people don't think that buddhism is unloving say in the way that you've described it could
1: you help me could you speak into that help us understand that people impose their own experiences and expectations on things that are quite different from them and so people don't get a clear understanding of buddhism and uh, they say, well, Buddhism plus instead of minus. Buddhism ah instead of uh. And so then they fill in the details from their own experience and cultural background and expectations rather than exploring what it actually is. But all, people all do that all over the world.
0: Often people say, and often it's it's secular people in my experience have said to me, oh, the, the fundamental teaching of all religions is To love one another, but that doesn't—that seems to be a very cheap and quick way of dismissing something that's quite complex. That Buddhism is very different um, in its understanding of love.
1: Well, it's quite—it's not only cheap and intellectually unsound; it's quite wrong. And it—and it makes a basic assumption, which I believe is erroneous, and that is that Christianity is a religion. Religion. Uh, the English word, comes from Latin religio, to reconnect. The The idea of religion is that people do a variety of things to reconnect themselves with the absolute, with truth. Ritual and discipline and... Um, study and exercise and and various things like that. Religion is from people to the absolute to reconnect. And there are various religions that try to reconnect in a variety of ways, but Christianity is the opposite. Christianity is God connecting with us. So you have several examples in the Bible, you have, Uh, Jacob's dream of the stairway into heaven, the angels were going up and down the stairway. Jacob was not, he didn't climb up that stairway to meet God. God came to him and stood next to him and spoke to him. And that is Christianity and it's not religious. It's the opposite of religious. It's God coming to us, Emmanuel god with us and then the the greatest uh, exhibit is the incarnation we don't climb up to god he comes to us and that's not religion so but but other religions are actually religious but Christianity is not and religion gets confused with ceremony or architects, architecture or music or uh, special clothing or uh, ritual and, and things like that. But that's just culture. That's just the, the things that, that people do. That's not the actual purpose of it. And, and the purpose of religious activities is for people to reconnect themselves to God. And the purpose of Christian activities, fellowship and prayer and Bible study and eating together and singing is to prepare and encourage each other to receive God in us, in our midst and in our hearts, in ourselves, to receive the kingdom of God in us so that we can live in the kingdom of God between us. It's the opposite of religion
0: that's beautiful i, just, I wanted to just let that sit <laughs> that's so helpful um perhaps a final piece of conversation that i think um people are are thinking about and interested in the moment and it may be coming back to the way you described um buddhism and silence realizing possibility Christianity is in it has at its heart the idea of the word becoming flesh and so words speaking um, is a much seems to be a, seems to occupy a much greater part of Christianity than in Buddhism hence the the emphasis on preaching and of prayer as speaking and I guess that's what I'd love to get your reflections and comments on is, contemplative prayer within christianity uh is that an oxymoron um is does prayer always require speech from the christian um to god helping helping us to think through the the role of of speech in in relationship to god if that that makes any sense
1: yeah i think so the bible has words like prayer and think, thought, and meditation and the verbs. We pray, we think, we meditate. And they're different words and they're not synonymous. They're not exactly the same thing. And prayer always involves words. So at the end of the prophecy of Hosea, it says, um, return to the Lord, bring words with you. I love that. It's like in a bucket, you bring your words to God, that's very precious. Um, Maybe I can make a description. Meditation uh, in in many Eastern religious senses of meditation is the practice of stopping the mind through concentration and transcendence. The meditation that it speaks of in the Bible many times mostly in psalm 119 is on content so i meditate on god's glory on his mighty power on his word i I meditate on something and it's different from thought it's not the same as thought and the picture that that i use to understand this is that meditation is more passive than thought And it's spherical. It's like our our mind, our consciousness is a a sphere or a plane and that we sit with the content passively. And we, we wait receptively for the Holy Spirit to touch our mind at one point or the other with the content about God and reality and, and then we begin to think about it and to pray. So I can see meditation and prayer and thought as all being a part of the Christian life. And that they should not be confused. So that I think to, to meditate is to be still and know that I am God. That is clearly biblical, to be still, to quiet my mind, to be receptive, to let the Holy Spirit touch my mind and move my mind and make connections for me. But that is not a complete relationship with God. That is not a complete expression of the image of God. I then need to think about it and speak about it to God and to other people. And then it becomes complete human reality. That's very helpful.
0: I think I've heard you before use the illustration of essentially imagining casting a net over your mind um, and trying to hold on to thoughts related to the
1: subject matter that you want to think about as well. Right. that, That the mind in meditation is like a web or a net and it's passive. And then the Holy Spirit touches the web or net at one point or another and, and then we begin to see connections that we didn't mm. see before.
0: That's beautiful. And I think in, in, in framing it within the, the larger context of the, the, the theory of everything that is Trinitarianism, we understand that relationship is really important. It's not just about me and my thoughts, which, as you said, you alluded to, can, if we're not careful, tend to selfishness. Um, but it's about me then expressing in relationship to God and to others that actually forms the completion of my experience of reality. Is that correct? Yes, I would say so. And So for the Christian, relationship is key. Love is key. And as you said, in your uh, overview of the theory of everything that is the third circle, Trinitarianism, suffering in Christian terms is not desire, but self-centeredness and selfishness that cuts us off from relationship from God from others and I think in your book you describe the human condition as being like a black hole or a supernova that sucks everything into it Um, how do how does that condition of being a human that sucks everything into us in our self-centered self-seeking nature how do we as human beings have any hope of being changed to become loving and other-centered
1: Well, I like your expression, to be changed, rather than to change, because we have no hope of doing it for ourselves. The only hope we have is that God will do it for us. And and this hope is based on the first beatitude, poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is the knowledge that I need God, that in myself I am poor and unable, and I need God to give me life and to give me reality. And if I, am, if I am poor in spirit, if I am touchable and teachable, then the kingdom of heaven is mine. Because I will receive what God gives me. But if I think I can do it or I need to do it or I have a plan or a program, then that's richness of spirit. And the kingdom of heaven is not mine. So there's an active passivity I have to be quite passive to receive what God gives me. And then I have to be active to praise him, to bless others, to speak his truth. I have to be both active and passive. Wow.
0: Thank you. That's a very helpful answer. I find that you you have such an ability to be able to answer in such a concise yet profound way. Um, I find myself just wanting to think about everything you're saying. Um <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today as we as we draw things to a close, um, is there anything that you feel we've not covered that's on, on your mind you think actually I think it's important that I just mention this or we, we
1: I think we've talked about a lot. We have a lot of material and I pray that it will be a blessing to people. Mm.
0: And I, I do really want to encourage all of my listeners to to buy your books. I think we have just scratched the tip of the iceberg that um, is the explanations that you give to a lot of these questions um ellis it's been a real privilege and pleasure thank you so much for your time and thank you for being with us today
1: uh thank you jess it was good to talk with
0: you and god bless you in your life and work